today from the book of James, chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Thank you, maybe seated. Thanks, Will. Good morning. It's good to be together as God's people, to learn from his word. Would you join me in praying now as we prepare to study this passage together? Heavenly Father, we give you glory this morning because you are very holy. You are jealous for your people. You are the lawgiver and judge. We entrust ourselves to you to learn from your word this morning. We ask that you would be glorified, that Christ would be magnified, and that we would be edified in the study of this passage in the book of James. God, we ask for wisdom and clarity that can only come through your Holy Spirit. Help me even now, Father, to be faithful to this text. We give you all the glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I hope that you've been challenged and encouraged by our study of the book of James. I know I have been. The book of James is a bit of a tricky one. Uh, Beyond the challenge of chapter 2, which Will handled so well, it's also a different kind of a book. Um, And you've probably noticed this. It's different than we often think of letters in the New Testament being like the letters from Paul. Paul's letters are written to specific churches to specific pastors, and often include specific admonitions and exhortations. It's common to hear things like, 
greet the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. That's totally normal in a letter that Paul writes. James, on the other hand, is writing to a broad audience of believers from Jerusalem who are now spread in the diaspora. So rather than dealing with particular issues and theologies, issues of theology or practice arising from specific circumstances that he has in mind, James is dealing with the issues of theology and practice that feel relevant to the whole church. These are James's concerns for, for the church as it grows. This book is also very hard to outline. In fact, it's kind of funny if you go and read commentaries on the book of James as they try to figure out, like, is this the outline? Does this connect to this? We're not really sure. Uh, it feels less like a five-paragraph essay and more like somebody threw a grenade and then went and picked up pieces and said, now look at this piece. Let me tell you about this. And then, oh, how about this one? They're not always super connected. It feels a little disjointed, especially for a church that's honed on the letters of Paul, which do tend to be very specific and uh, organized. Commentators tend to think of the book of James as being, as feeling more like the book of 1 John than feeling like any of Paul's letters. And I think that probably feels right. Also, it's worth noting that James just does a whole lot of quoting the words of Jesus. He is over and over again back into the words of Jesus, and you're going to see that today. As we've heard the book of James preached, and as I've prepared for this message, uh, I've been really impressed with just how much it feels like the Lord has for the, the church at large, the Big C Church, but also for us here at Providence Bible Church in the book of James. So today, we're going to learn about the causes of quarrels. We're going to hear that God wants all of our hearts, all of our attention, all of our affections. We're going to be reminded to mind our tongues, just like last week. And we're going to hear about a place where arrogance may creep into our lives. So, let's get into the text. Verses 1 to 3 in James chapter 4 feel very connected to the end of what Steve taught last week. I'm going to read it together without that pesky chapter break. And that's one of my hobby horses. If you hang out with me for just a little while, you'll hear me say, chapter breaks don't always make sense. Sometimes they break up a thought that would be better put together. I think this is one of those times. Um, So, let me just read to you James 3. 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You have heard that it was, oh, I didn't keep on going, no. Okay, by those who make peace. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, read, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So James is completing the comparison 
Who is wise and understanding among you? The wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. But you guys have quarrels and fights among you. Let me tell you about what causes that. They're not behaving the way James just extolled at the end of chapter 3. So he moves to a little bit of confrontation. And let me tell you, just warn you in advance, this is minor confrontation compared to where we're going to get. <laughs> Those who make peace sow a harvest of righteousness, but not you guys. There are quarrels, fights. What causes them? Now, I can get a little bit defensive here, because when I feel drawn to contend... Which, by the way, contend, contentiousness, those are the same thing. When I feel drawn to contend, it's usually because I've told myself that something is very wrong. And I need to fix it. I need to be a part of being the change I want to see, right? And there is room in the life of the believer for that kind of serious contending for truth. What James has in mind is what I think we see a lot more commonly these days especially if you happen to follow discussions online. What causes quarrels and fights? Your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Murder feels pretty strong, doesn't it? Murder? But this is consistent with Jesus' teaching. In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus says, You've heard it, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. James' words also find an echo earlier in his own work. It might sound familiar. James 1, 14, 15 say, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Right? What causes quarrels? Your desires... Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is, there's this consistent message in James that does harken back to Jesus. That being controlled by our passions is not very good for us. It's pretty bad. It's the opposite, in fact, of being wise and understanding. We live in a culture that's very big on ambition, on seeking to get more, on, on filling, living into your desires. James says, stop it. Knock it off. You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, but you can't get what you want, so you fight and quarrel. And then, this interesting nugget, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. Boy, you can misapply this passage. And you can go and find lots of really bad false teaching about this passage. Have you ever had a friend that played the lottery a lot? Have one of those friends and they'll remain unnamed so as to protect them. But he persistently has a plan for all the good things he would do if he were to win the lottery. It's as though he's trying to say to God or the universe or somebody, maybe the lottery, you can give me the money. Trust me, I'm going to do something good with it. James is not telling you to pursue that kind of silliness. The reality of what he is saying, though, is a little bit arresting, a little troubling. 
You ask, and God says no. Because you just want to gratify your passions. That means sometimes the reason you get no answer to your prayer, or a no answer to your prayer, is because your motives stink. That's what James is saying. I guess that's not surprising, but it's a little stark. It's a little, it's a little troubling. It means that a lot of the modern self-empowerment, like visualize it and you will make it out, that doesn't work in God's economy. This is not a call to get you to ignore your passions, though. This is a call to get you to be transformed. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So we've got this common cause of quarreling and infighting in the church, selfish ambition, envy. James tells his readers, knock it off, and he says, Hey, if, if you're hearing no, it's because your motives stink. And God knows it, and he's not going to give you that. It's not going to give you what's not good for you. Whew, that's direct, and that's like this much of this passage. Before we jump into the next section of this letter, I just want to remind you, because it's not going to feel like it here in a second. James has been friendly to his readers all along. He calls them Adelphoi, which is Greek for brothers and sisters, over and over again. Chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 1, and verse 14, chapter 3, 1, and and verse 10 and 11 or 12 over and over again James has been super friendly cool I'm going to read this and we're going to sit in it for a minute you adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands you sinners. Purify your hearts you double minded. Be wretched and mourn. Weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. That's heavy. I'm going to read you a quote from Soren Kierkegaard. The matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget anything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. You will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention that, to defend itself against the Bible to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Oh, priceless scholarship, what would we do without you? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. Just me again. 
that's a little overly cynical about the place of Christian scholarship. But I suspect that sometimes we're doing that very thing. Oh, James is really challenging here. I wonder what that could mean. I don't know. We should dig into a bunch of definitions and find out exactly what this might mean. Actually, it's pretty simple. I think this passage is, in effect, pretty simple. You can't be friends with the world without being God's enemy. That's it. That's what he's after. I'm going to make the argument from the text, but that's it. That's, that's it. Simple. James starts, You adulterous people. Literally, in the text, it's you adulteresses, you adulterous women. Um, what's an adulteress? Well, somebody who's sleeping, having sexual relations with the person who, with people who are not their husband, right? That's it. Does James mean he's singling out the practice of adultery? No, because he doesn't go on to talk about that, right? Therefore, we understand that James is calling them adulterous in order to grab their attention. He is trying to be offensive in this moment. It's like when Jesus says, you brood of vipers to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 34. Are they actually vipers? No. But he gets their attention, doesn't he? Here, James gets the attention of his readers, and I just want to remind you, today, that's us. He is getting our attention. This is a commonly used analogy when God's people have compromised their relationship with him in the Old Testament, right? This is a letter to Jewish people spread abroad. So they're thinking of Isaiah 54, verses 5 and 6, where where he says, Your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of your youth when she is cast off, says your God. And they're thinking of Hosea, who God calls to marry a woman who is persistently unfaithful. And that's actually, that's the G-rated Sunday morning version. If you go read the book of Hosea, it's a lot stronger than that. God says it's a picture of Israel's persistent unfaithfulness, and his never-failing love for his people anyway. So just in three words to set up this passage, and really one word in the Greek, James gets confrontational. But what's the accusation? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. This is not a novel idea to James here. 1 John 2, 5 through 7, John says, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you a new commandment, no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. This, no, this is the wrong passage. Very definitely. Ah, uh, 15 through 17. Let's start again. I wondered what had happened. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires. 
but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This idea of friendship with the world being enmity with God is also similar to Jesus' teaching, right? In Luke 16, 13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. James' accusation is that his readers have sought friendship with the world, and in so doing, they have made themselves God's enemy. It's the very next sentence. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. All right, so let's say we're doing the scholarship thing. What does it mean to be a friend of the world? Well, James's readers, their ears are ringing with you adulteresses. So in saying that, James casts us in, in which role? The bride, right? We are the bride. Um, and we have a bridegroom, right? In Ephesians 5, Paul tells us, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. We often read that when we're talking about how husbands and wives should interact, but there's like a beautiful truth about how Jesus perceives his church, us, in that passage. He wants to sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water with the word. Why? So that he might present his bride to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Spot, wrinkle, any such thing, friendship with the world. When James calls his readers adulteresses, roots friendship with the world, we understand that he's saying his readers, us, may have set our affections on someone or something other than the bridegroom. Then the passage from 1 John helps us. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So, friendship with the world, setting our hearts, our affections, on the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. These things are not from the Father. We cannot love them befriend them, pursue them, and bring them close while claiming to belong to the Father. That's James's argument. Why? Why does it matter? Why can't I have it both ways, James? You might expect him to say, because then your behavior will stink. That is not what he says. He does not ground this accusation in results. He grounds it in God's nature. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This is a bit of a tricky piece exegetically. Uh, The Greek could be translated either God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Or it could be interpreted as the Net Bible puts it. The spirit that God caused to live within us has an envious yearning. I'm inclined toward the former. There are lots of, like, you can dive in deep into that. Uh, but, but there is a consistent Old Testament teaching that God is jealous for his people. And that inclines me to the former. Uh, but additionally tricky, James says he's quoting scripture. And there is no scripture that fits this 100%. This is not a direct quote. Uh, now, 
Often we say, as the scripture says, and then summarize. That's what James is doing here. He's summarizing a, um, a Old Testament teaching that's common, that God is jealous for his people. Let's look at that teaching. Where do we find that? Exodus 20, 4 through 6, and the Ten Commandments. God tells them, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is on the water or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Additionally, Exodus 34, 14, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And Zechariah 8, 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Our loving Heavenly Father is unwilling to share. He is not willing to share our affections with false gods or anything that would replace his proper role in our lives. Sometimes that means, you know, people who actually go and worship things that are carved, right? And that's simple, that's easy to see. But sometimes it's people like us who supplant God's place with like pretty fun things, pretty ordinary things. His holiness and his purity demands that he not tolerate that for very long. James is saying here in James 4 is that your attempts at friendship with the world fly in the face of God's desire for all of your affection, for all of your love, for all of your friendship. It might be easy to despair, but we ought not to, because James continues. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God has grace enough for us to satisfy his own holy requirements. That's what we celebrate every Sunday morning when we take communion together. We're reminding each other that's the body and blood of Jesus Christ that makes any of this possible. So as we deal with this challenging passage, brothers and sisters, do not despair. Don't think that this is on you. This does require behavior change. If you have fallen into this kind of idolatry, adultery, uh, if you've fallen into this desire for friendship in the world, with the world, but the grace that empowers any of this comes from God, not from, not from somewhere inside you. This is not, as Jason reminds us often, try harder, do better. That's not what this is. He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is a quote of Proverbs 3.34. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Peter quotes this too, um, so it's common. The New Testament writers like this passage. So, if God gives grace, if God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, how should we live? As we repent of trying to have friendship with the world, how do we behave? James has some commands. 
And they're intense too. None of this is like light and airy. Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Kind of feels like there's a whole process for repentance there, doesn't it? It's worth noting, uh, we're called often in the New Testament to rejoice in the Lord, uh, to, to be thankful in the face of trials, right? And here we're called to go ahead and mourn, to weep, to let our laughter be turned to mourning and our joy to gloom. How do you reconcile that? Well, the reconciliation is this is when you're dealing with sin in your life. When you've got persistent sin in your life, when, you're, when you are repenting, that is not the time to be joyful in the face of a trial. Your sin is not a trial. Your sin is something to be mourned. Um, this whole process for repentance here in these verses. Uh, I do want to draw your attention. There's a, it's really similar, actually, to a passage in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 5, 5-10 says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe, yourself, clothe, your, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So a lot of similarities in those two passages. And there are, of course, suspicious scholars, generally ones who are maybe not in the main of the faith, who would say, ha, see, James just stole from Peter, and that's what happened. <laughs> well, what's far more likely and less cynical is that this is probably a common teaching in the early church. Hey, resist the devil. Um, submit yourself to God. These, these sorts of things are common. So let's just, real quick, we're going to fly through James's commands here a little bit more deftly. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. How do we bring ourselves into a right orientation toward God and away from the world? Because that's the dichotomy here, right? Friendship with the world, enmity with God. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. What does that mean? Uh, much of my study of this passage was aided by Douglas Moo and the Pillar New, Com New Testament Commentary on James. It's a really good volume if you need like a single volume on James. Recommend that one. Good commentaries are a gift from God. Douglas Moo says, To submit to God means to place ourselves under his lordship, and therefore to commit ourselves to obey him in all things. He goes on to explain that the Greek term carries the idea of a proper hierarchy. You cannot submit if you do not acknowledge your lower place in reference to the thing you are submitting to. God is not like you. Amen. He is not like me. He's not just another authority. He's not the magistrate in Beckley where you might have to go pay a speeding ticket. He is the ultimate authority. So we submit to him. And hand in hand with submitting to him is resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
The devil is not a rightful authority. Sometimes we forget that. He is an authority. He is a spiritual power. But our job is to resist him. And look at the promise there. Resist and he will flee from you. Resist this twisted authority over the world and he'll go away and go mess with other things. Which James couples with an even better promise. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Man, submit to, submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God and he will come for you. It evokes the prodigal son, right? The son finally is dragging his sorry hind end home. And the father comes running. The son finally draws near. The father comes for him. If you're in love with the world, if you're sitting here, you're like, ooh, this might be me. Repent. Draw near to God and he will come for you. James continues with these commands mixed with announcements. These are tricky. These are, if you're a little bit in love with the world, you should hear this and be offended. I'm a little offended. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. James evokes the psalmist in a common Old Testament theme here, that our hands and our hearts must be purified to approach God. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, which we sang a version of this morning, thank you, Luke and Lauren, says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. This is a serious call to repentance. James emphasizes this by calling his readers, you sinners, you double-minded. And if you remember, double-mindedness has come up a couple times in James. Way back in James chapter 1, which my father-in-law preached, uh, James says, Let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave tossed in the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James doesn't have happy words for the double-minded man. Here in chapter 4, he calls for repentance. Clean your hearts, clean your hands. He continues with the Old Testament references. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Sounds a lot like Joel 2.12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. The repentance that James calls his readers to requires humility, serious reflection and grief over the ways that they've gone astray. If you've tried to be the world's friend and made yourself an enemy of God, it requires a serious reset. Mourn, be wretched, weep, humble yourself before the Lord. James wraps this section up by reminding us again of Jesus' teaching. Luke 18, Jesus says, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Humble yourselves before the Lord here in James, and he will exalt you. I am not given to jumping up and down when I preach God's word, but this passage is really serious. It's in your face, and I just... James is fairly jumping up and down, trying to call for repentance from these believers 
who've gone a little astray, fallen into this spiritual stupor, who have tried to become friends with the world, do not miss this. This can very easily be us. It doesn't get easier. He turns from this to another attack on the tongue. Steve did a great job last week, um, and one of the things he mentioned, thanks Steve, uh, was just how often the topic of the, our use of our tongues comes up throughout the book of James. I have the, fallen into that thing of like, yeah, that's James chapter 3. But James pointed out last week, like, no, it's everywhere in the book of James. You cannot miss it. Here in chapter 4, James says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So James exhorts his readers not to speak evil against one another. Note the return to brothers. He is back to being friendly, right? He's, this is not you adulteresses anymore. Thank heavens. Uh, he says, do not speak evil. That's translating Greek that is actually speak against. Do not speak against one another. It's negative speech. It's slander. He's calling out slander against fellow believers here in this passage. The people of Israel, of course, have this history of, um, of committing some slander. Numbers 21, verse 5. The people spoke up against God and against Moses. and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. That was slander. It was a lie about God. About God's treatment of them. James says we cannot speak against one another. Why? He says that when you slander or judge a brother, you slander and judge the law. Now that raises the question, which law? Right? Which law does James have in mind? The Old Testament law? Like what, what the Jewish readers that he's writing to would have thought of as the law? Possibly. But it seems more likely that it harkens back to two weeks ago to Will's message where James challenged them on partiality. In James 2, 8, 9, he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Remember, that is an allusion back to Leviticus 19, right? You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. James says, when we speak evilly and against and judge our brothers and sisters, it's not just that we violate the law. We set ourselves up as judges of the law. We're saying, eh, I know better than that. We set ourselves into God's place. James finishes, there's one lawgiver, judge, he was able to save and destroy. And in case you thought that that still might be you, he says, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, Will did a great job two weeks ago reminding us that there are certain kinds of judgment that we are called to exercise as believers. What James is particularly talking about here is the kind of evil judgment that leads to speaking evil against, slandering a brother or sister in Christ. There's no room for that in James' mind. 
Boy, howdy. We got room for it in the world, don't we? We platform people. We, we give people audience because they're good at this. Because they're good at slander. If you're feeding your appetite for that, somehow, knock it off. James says, who are you to judge your neighbor? And you know that he's got in mind. He's referred back to Jesus' teaching how many times? So what's he got in mind when he says, who are you to judge your neighbor? Okay. (laughs) What do we replace that judgmental speech with? Well, everything that James talks about at the end of James chapter 3. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's what we ought to do. Knock it off with evil slander. Replace it with wisdom from above. All right, we're on to our final segment in our passage today. Uh, Come now, you who say, tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. What's happening here? It's James against business people. James hates capitalism. He hates planning. Yeah, he's anybody, any of you who are that kind of person who makes a plan. James is actually, I'm that person. That's not what James is saying. He's after their hearts, right? He's dealing with a particular kind of arrogance. The arrogance that comes from thinking that we are in charge of our own lives. This passage parallels chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 pretty closely. Uh, They both start, Come now, you... And proceed to discuss a particular sinful behavior that James wants to counter. Um, I think there are probably other significant connections there. But I'm going to leave those to Jason who returns to the pulpit next week. Uh, He can take care of that. In the end of chapter 4, James is confronting the arrogance of those who think that they're in control. I'm going to tell you, James's audience had less of a tendency to think that they were in control than we do. Amen. We have germ theory. We have 401ks that automatically fund from our paychecks. We have GPS and satellites that tell us about the weather. We have pictures of deep space and pictures of DNA. We know how everything happens, we think. It's easy, with that kind of power, to fall into this kind of arrogance. James provides the corrective. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? <coughs> you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Two parallels you can't miss. Of course, we can't read that we are missed without thinking of the book of Ecclesiastes. For the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he gets to experience everything. And he calls it all meaningless, vapor, a mist. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. 
meaningless vapor. That's what you should think every time you read that in Ecclesiastes. James is right there with the, with the preacher in Ecclesiastes. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Everything meaningless, missed. Then the words of Jesus in Luke 12. Jesus tells him a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods. Laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus and his brother James both emphasize the danger of falling into arrogance around this brief life that we have on earth. Or as the preacher in Ecclesiastes would say, under the sun. What is James's remedy? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So we live humbly in the light of God's kingship. If he wills, we will live and do this or that. Why? Because the alternative is arrogance. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. James says that his readers have embraced an arrogant approach to the world. That's evil. We're to seek humility, um, to remind ourselves to live humbly. How do we do that? Throughout Christian history, there's evidence of different practices among believers. One of those is the Puritans really loved to put the letters DV at the end of their letters to one another. Um, and that stood for the Latin for Deo Volente, which is or for Latin, Deo Volente, which is this. If God wills, if the Lord wills, we will do such and such a thing serve to them as a little reminder um, that their plans are ultimately meaningless if they are not God's plan. And if developing a little practice like that is helpful, you should do it. The one thing you have to watch for is it can become like magic words, right? Ah, if I just, if I just say if God wills before I announce my arrogant plan, then I'm safe. And that is not how this works. This cannot be a superstitious thing. You need to discipline your heart, your spirit, to receive what God would have for you. To understand that his sovereignty over all things is for your good. Don't become arrogant thinking that your plans govern the universe. God is in control, and it is very good. James ends, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The so there is really tricky. How does this connect back? To living humbly. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows to do the right thing, who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. It's a tricky one. But it's not unlike James to come back to the words of Jesus. In Matthew 25, 41 to 43, Jesus says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. 
And likewise, in Matthew 23, 23, he says to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. I think here in verse 17, James is simply providing a reminder that there are sins of commission, the things that you set your heart and mind to go do wrong, and then there are these sins of omission, these sins of arrogance. Make your plans. You know the right thing to do. You don't do it. James is attacking that. So, we've made it through our passage. And that was a lot. What are you going to do with that this week? Uh, in, in trying to keep with, with our practice here at Providence. I have four R's in three points. Huh? Four R's for you today as we seek to apply this passage to our lives. First, repent and recommit. Brothers and sisters, you simply cannot be friends with the world without being God's enemy. I don't know where the Holy Spirit is working on you today. Pretty aware of where he's working on me today. kind of hurts. But you must commit to complete fidelity to God, to being fully his. This is more serious than the Yankees versus the Red Sox. It's more serious than the Maple Leafs versus the Canadiens. It's more serious even, dare I say, than WVU versus Virginia Tech or Pitt. Either one. It's even more serious than USA versus Russia. This is the most significant divide that exists in the universe. It's God versus evil. Good versus evil, but God. You cannot be a friend to the world without compromising your faithfulness to God. Now, I'm going to tell you, I've struggled with this message because I want to be both and. I want to, I'm a friendly guy. I'm gentle. You know? I just want to be, can't we all get along? James says, no. Absolutely not. So, repent and recommit. Wherever it is that you've softened your stance, where you've received the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, something from the world, and you've said, yeah, it's okay for that to be the standard in my life instead of God's standard, repent. Recommit to being faithful to the creator of all things, the God of Abraham and Isaac. He is jealous. He wants all of your affection. He will not share you with the world. Don't try to have it both ways. Repent and recommit. If you're not sure exactly what to do with that, my recommendation is this. Ask God to show you where you might be aware, unaware that you're accepting the world's standard instead of his. Be in the word. Be in prayer. God will be at work on your part, I assure you. Repent and recommit. Reconsider. Reconsider your speech. Do not speak evilly about your brothers and sisters. There's no room for tribalism in the kingdom of God. When it rears its head, it's often the result of those first three verses, our desires for more controlling us. James says, brother and sister, knock it off. It is evil and it is wrong. Two practical ways to bring about some change on this in your heart, in my heart. One, pray for the people who are sitting here. Make a list. It's not that weird. Not only is it good spiritual discipline, it's really hard, it turns out, 
to speak evilly against somebody that you pray for regularly. Really tricky to do that. You're like, oh, I prayed for that person. I can't say that. Two, pray for the other churches here in Beckley. Start small. You can do a quick Google search or, you know, pull out the old yellow pages. Kids, there used to be a phone book. It's a whole thing. Pray through there. You might not agree with those other churches on orthopraxy, on how we do church. That's okay. If you agree with them on orthodoxy, on the central tenets of the Christian faith, you ought to be able to pray for them. Those are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Repent and recommit, reconsider your speech, and relinquish your plans. I don't know what plans you have, but I assure you of this. Your life and my life are a vapor. They are so brief. We are a speck of dust. We live in a time where arrogance is maximally easy. We can post our dope houses, offices, dogs, whatever, across Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. We can make plans in ways that James's readers would not have been able to fathom. It's easy to build bigger barns. But man, we are nothing. This very night, your soul might be required of you. Hold things loosely. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moth cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. When you make plans, say, if the Lord wills, we will do this thing. Because you need the reminder, and I need the reminder, that you are not in control. I am not in control. God is in control. He is at work. Repent and recommit. Reconsider your speech. And relinquish your plans. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, for this book of James, for this confrontation today. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray that you would be at work in our lives, that you would be showing us where maybe we've sought friendship with the world and made ourselves your enemy, where we've allowed arrogance to creep into our lives. God, we repent of those things. Pray that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you. Thank you, Father, that you give more grace. We're so reliant on you. We can do nothing on our own. God, I pray that you would be glorified through your church this week. pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me for a benediction? Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in peace, but stay and eat with us if you can.